702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. Give us a call, 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line, 072-702-1702. Happy Monday, Dr. Chris. Are you well? Yeah, pretty good. How about you? I am good and I wondered what module would you introduce that is compulsory for all young people? in school or I was thinking tertiary. about this as, um, mm. as you and John were speaking it really kind of got my attention that point and it made me think and I agree with him that maths has got to be on the list because no matter what you do in life you need to have some degree of numerical skills and mm. numeracy so maths must be there but arguably what we're doing communicating I think is underappreciated and in many countries under taught and there mm. are key aspects of how to communicate clearly that can be really easily taught and passed on to people and make a world of difference and I go to many science conferences and things and then I give sort of teaching and training sessions to people about how to make their science come across better and I say to those classes put your hand up if you've been to a conference recently or a seminar or a workshop or something and they put their hands up pretty much everyone does and then you say keep your hand up if you understood everything that everyone oh. said to you at that meeting and then you say to everyone, look around the room, there's not one single hand up. And you say, what kind of indictment is this on us as a scientific community if we can't even talk to each other mm. and we're ostensibly all experts in our field, what hope do the general public stand? Why is this happening? And the thing is that it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because people will go to a conference or a workshop and they watch other people make it excruciatingly complicated with all these long words and uh, all difficult slides with millions of data points on them and then everyone thinks that's how you've got to do it because otherwise people will think less of you so they copy them and mm. unsurprisingly it goes round and round in circles so the key thing is keep it short, keep it simple, easy to understand, no one's going to criticise you for making something simple and accessible, easy to understand. Most people don't want to admit that they don't understand something, so when they say any questions, no one wants to put their hand up, do they? Because mm. they think, oh, I didn't get that. We need to work on making our communication skills better because then everyone benefits. Mm. I think so. Would we call it the module on self-articulation? <laughs> Maybe. I just find some countries are much better at presenting themselves and mm. they're naturally showmen or salesmen. Um, mm. Americans tend to be really good presenters and I think there must be some aspect of the way the educational system works in America where people yes. tend to be better speakers, they're quite good at being extroverted and standing up and, and, and gaining the confidence of an audience. Whereas many countries people feel almost ashamed to be out there in the spotlight and they sort of shrink away rather than relish the moment and it's about kind of i think having more self-confidence knowing how to grab the audience but also how to not be intimidated by an audience and the sound of your own voice to put your your points forward mm. and if we could teach people to have that that a bit more not to the point where people become annoying but enough that people can engender confidence that will go a long way, I think. And then giving people the confidence to make their message simple so they know they can leave stuff out and people mm. won't think less of them. But they don't think they don't know it because they didn't say it. They concentrated on what the key points are. Okay, I, I, I am sold on that one. I think that's a brilliant one. Uh, I look forward to the results of the study, Dr. Chris, when you and your team run it on why it is that certain groups of people are better at it than others. Let's jump straight into the questions coming through for Dr. Chris Smith, 0727021702, and you can give us a call, 011 We've got a voice note. Hi, Dr. Chris. This is Logan here from Edenville. I'd just like to know, is there a way of calculating how much distance... A person travels in respect to the universe because I know 
we obviously rotating on the earth and the earth itself rotates around the sun and the sun, it's, uh, our galaxy is also rotating. So how much distance is actually covered in one second in relation to the center of our galaxy specifically? Mm. You're quite right, Logan. Everything's in motion. We're all on sort of a giant carousel around the universe because, as you say, our Earth is spinning, and depending upon where you're standing on the surface of the Earth, you're turning at a different speed. So you take that into account. If you're on the equator, then you're doing about a 1,000 kilometers an hour. If you're at the North Pole, much less. The Earth is racing through space, going round the Sun, taking one year to do a lap of our solar system. So that's movement. That's like on the, on the carousel. You're spinning in your car, and your car is also spinning round the roundabout. But then... It's like you're on one of those rides where your car is part of a clutch of cars going round on the end of a long arm. That's our solar system going round our galaxy. And it's even more complicated, this carousel, this cosmic carousel ride, because our galaxy is going round in a spiral round other galaxies. So we're going round as a big pool. When you take all those different sorts of momentum into account, what movement, it's a vast distance that we're covering every second. I don't know what the number is, and it's going to be different for each person in different parts of the uh, Earth's surface, of course, a little bit. But it's a vast number because everything's in motion and we're all moving at huge, terrific speed through space. Oh, thank you so much, Logan, for that question. Here's another one. Good day, Levo and uh, the Naked Scientist. My question is that uh, uh, why is it when somebody's very hungry and they drink something like a cool drink that is very cold when they are very hungry uh, they get a sharp pain in the stomach which is what happened to me uh, not so long ago it was such a sharp pain because i was very hungry and i thought of drinking something sweet but hey it really created a pain for myself thank you levo the naked scientist oh dr chris i hope it's not ulcers yeah me too that's a possibility if you don't eat regularly and you eat irregularly then your bowel and your gut has enormous numbers of nerve cells in there which develop a bowel habit it's anticipatory secretion of digestive juices and so on and if you don't feed yourself when your gut's expecting to be fed then sometimes you end up with digestive juices with nothing to digest no dinner so they digest you instead and then when you put other things in later like other irritants and so on and cold drinks it can uh, make make any underlying symptom worse it means possible that that was also pain but it's also the fact that when you put something very very cold straight down into an empty stomach if there's nothing in your stomach there's no fluid already there or no food already there to mix with the cold stuff you've put in so the cold stuff is going to hit straight against the side of your stomach and it's going to cool the sides of your stomach right down to the temperature of the fluid you've just put in and while you don't have the same resolution of sensation on your insides you have what's called visceral sensation which is more diffuse as a sense of temperature and pain and so on you can nevertheless feel what's going on inside you and i strongly suspect that that cold effect because it was undiluted and hit the stomach wall straight away caused a patch of local cooling and therefore irritation to pain and temperature sensitive nerves that innovate your viscera and that's what you were feeling thank you so much for that question uh, I'm, I'm gonna hold myself from laughing samuel in Ranfontein, what's happening in your life that you're asking this question <laughs> samuel yes actually actually um and my wife um every time when i'm with uh, 
uh, for some strange reasons, I always pass out and she's pregnant. And, and, and <laughs> I just want to find out if, if there's anything that happens there. <laughs> you, know? you know how many people would say that to me when I was around them and pregnant, like I'm making them tired. <laughs> yeah. I love that question. Doctor? Just rephrase the question for me a minute. So the question is, what is it that, what causes people to fall asleep or be drowsy when they're next to a pregnant woman? He says that his wife is <laughs> pregnant and he's always tired, basically. <laughs> well, presumably he worked off a bit of energy getting to the pregnancy state in the first place. So that may be part of the equation. Um, depending on how vigorous so it was. I am so dead. Um, so that's part of it. Um, the other part of it is sometimes when people are at the latter stages of pregnancy, any woman listening to this knows the I just want it out now phase where you feel like a heavy goods vehicle because you are so enormous and it just is so uncomfortable. You can't get comfortable in bed and so you find yourself tossing and turning and this can mean your partner doesn't necessarily get a good night's sleep either. So although you're exhausted, so are they. So that can be part of it. It's a stage of pregnancy matters as well. And so a range of reasons and also could be that there's a lot of excitement around being pregnant and welcoming a new family member and that excitement can be exhilarating but then fatiguing at the same time. So it's, is it, are you saying it's not a case of where dad takes on some of the pregnancy symptoms? No, I don't think so. I think it's probably that it's it's an exciting time. It takes a bit of getting used to, lots of preparations to do, get things ready to go, and uh, and some of the other factors I've mentioned, and all that adds up to changing lifestyle, changing practice, mm. changing the pattern of your life, and this can translate into you being a bit tired. Some people put in lots of extra shifts, for example, because they think this is going to cost me quite a bit. Mm. I need to save up for a few extra things, and they do a few extra shifts, and it all adds up and you feel a bit tireder. I would say if you think you're tired now, just wait. Just it's, wait. Just yeah. wait. It's coming. All right. Uh, we've got uh, Basket uh, from Johannesburg. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Thanks. And you? I'm very well. I've got a question for Doc. Oh, can you, know, you just speak into your uh, handset? You sound a little bit far. Oh, okay. Uh, just hold on. Yeah. It's okay. Better. Yes. Yeah. So I was saying uh, to Doc, aeroplanes, when they design them, they are very symmetrical. Okay, and why is it that we enter them on the left as opposed? Oh, okay, we lost him. But the question was, why do we enter aeroplanes on the left and not on the right if they're symmetrical? Well, it doesn't really make any difference, does it? Because you've got to have doors somewhere. And you, you do have ex escape doors down the length of the aircraft, of course. But it's just the tradition. You go in through where they tend to put the door, and that may affect the formatting and how they sort of pattern the inside of the aircraft. But they're symmetrical in terms of weight, and that's what matters. It's, it's distributing the weight in the aircraft so that it doesn't end up with the aircraft being unstable once it's loaded. And... That doesn't really matter where people get in. It's where they sit, where you put the luggage and where you put the fuel, because that's a really heavy thing is the fuel that uh, you're going to put hundreds of tons of fuel on there as well. And that is put symmetrically into the wings. So it doesn't really matter where you get into the aircraft. It's how you load and balance all the stuff out in the first place. It's a bit like a caravan, for example. When we have a caravan on our car, you tend to open the door on one side of the caravan, but you balance it out so that it doesn't lift the nose of your car or push down on mm. the, um, the 
back of the caravan too much and so on. Um, so it's, it doesn't matter where you get in and out. It's where you put the stuff once it's in there that matters. I must say it got me thinking. I'm like, I think I've entered planes on the right. So they aren't all uniform. Maybe there's a specific airline um, that uh, he was using that was only going in on one side. But very good question as well. More of the questions coming up uh, on the WhatsApp line. Here's a voice note. Hey, good afternoon, Arlebuhila and Dr. Chris. Sabu uh, here from Pretoria. My question is, with all the heavy rainfall that we've been having across different parts of the world, specifically here in South Africa, is there a way that we can measure how much of that rainwater has actually permeated the ground and become underground water and if it's clean enough for people to drink? Because mm. they say that we have a problem with finding good, fresh, clean water at good prices. So mm. I want to know, is there a way that we can find how much of the groundwater has actually has gone down in the last, let's say, five years? And is it good enough for us to actually, I don't know, bring up new boreholes and more cleaner water? Thank you, Spoo from Pretoria. Great question. And I would add to that, Doctor, to say, how do we know if the amount of water, because we know the percentage uh, on Earth has increased with the evaporation and the, the rains? Well, we can only model this indirectly. So the way that this is worked out is we, we know in a certain geography over a certain square kilometer area how much rain has fallen therefore we know roughly how much has had the opportunity to go into the ground and then we have to model what happens to the water after that because there's no way you can with the short of putting tracers down and seeing how far it goes you have to guesstimate some of this and you use various modeling studies various estimations and various mathematical ways of making these calculations because depending upon what the terrain is like how dry the soil was already because drier soil is going to have a capacity that's different to wetter soil also if the soil is already waterlogged more water is going to run off if the soil is baked hard more water is going to run off if it's already um, slightly damp then the water will land and soak in better so it really matters all these different things and you have to make various estimates based on your understanding of those different sorts of terrains really though what we can do is go to boreholes we do have and measure the level of water in them and that can give us an estimate as to whether the level is staying the same and we're taking about out about what's going back in or mm. if it's falling we're taking more out than is the replenishment rate or also the salinity in some parts of the world where they're very reliant on boreholes perth in western australia good example the city is using a lot of artesian water this is water in geological formation subsurface if you pull a lot of that water out the pressure of that water that's holding back incursion of water from elsewhere drops and this means sometimes if you're close to the sea you can end up with saline making its way into your previously fresh water source and you get brine in your drinking water so that's the other thing to look at is the salinity how much of brine is making its way in the seepage in the ocean so all these things are taken into account when working out how our groundwater stocks are holding up what their replenishment rates are and what the likely impact of rainfalls will be on groundwater levels all right, thank you so much. Uh, somebody on the WhatsApp line says, entering an aeroplane goes back to shipping days where passengers entered from the left, which is the port side. Very port quickly. Port side. Yes. Yeah, very good point. Love that one. Thank, thank you. you for that. Rajima, you have a quick question. Go ahead. I would like to know what uh, what makes someone like really to Healer have this outstanding laughter. How could one de develop a kind of laughter that makes one to feel so happy? And I've never heard anyone accepting like really really you have an amazing laughter Thank you. how would one develop to feel 
you know, one could laugh and have an outstanding laughter. Thank you so much, Rajima, Doctor. <laughs> we'll have to have a um, laughter competition next week, won't we? Everyone has to listen to hours of you and see if they can imitate the laughter. It is infectious, though. It's true, isn't it? Once you hear someone start to laugh, it makes you feel more cheerful. It makes you want to laugh as well. So laughter is infectious, and that's probably a social, societal thing where, as a community, as a group, as a social species, we share a joke together, we laugh together, and we bond together in that way. So people who are natural leaders tend to be quite extroverted, tend to have quite a loud laugh because they're broadcasting their humour, they're broadcasting their good mood mm. and saying, come to me, come and join in with me. I'm in a good mood, I can team up with you and we can all help each other out. And so I think it's in that way, it's a way of sending that message to the, to the wider community. Let's all work together and be mm. successful and we're happy. I would say laugh like no one's listening, no one's watching. It's from... You don't care how you look, if you look silly, if you sound silly. And that's how we are at home. But this is literally how I am at home. Thank you so much for making my day with that question. Dr. Christmas, back together next week.